helpful if you had Mark chapter 5 open in front of you. We're going to be considering, uh, again, this little section. We've been in Mark, uh, sort of the end of chapter 4 through chapter 5 uh, for the last few weeks. <clears throat> what is involved in being a follower of Jesus, I wonder? Um, how you might answer that question. And the, the aim of my question is not to ask, how do you become a follower of Jesus? But once you are a follower of Jesus, what responsibilities are there on your head? Um, maybe uh, some of you think that surely there are no responsibilities on my head. Surely uh, salvation is just a free gift. It's all given to me. Uh, it's a bit like it when you sign up for one of them uh, email services uh, you know, something like Secret Escapes or, or Travel Zoo. Maybe some of you are signed up to them. You give them your email address and that's it. And then what they do in return is they send you these wonderful offers of places you can go around the world and it, it, just this free service that seems to come to you. Hit, we'll dig out the offers and send them to you. Is that what it's like, becoming a follower of Jesus? All you give him is this simple prayer of confession and repentance and then he gives you all the good gifts of salvation and righteousness and, and joy. Is that the way the Christian life works? I would like to say, no, it isn't. There are responsibilities on the head of believers. But before we go any further, I just want to guard against an error. I'm not saying that there is any sort of cooperation in our salvation. I'm not saying that we work to be saved, or Jesus does a little bit and then we do the rest. I'm not saying that Jesus gives us the roadmap of how to get to heaven, and then we have to walk that path. No, no, I I want to affirm and confirm that we are saved only because of what Jesus does on our behalf for us. We are saved through his death on our behalf. Nothing of our own merit contributes to our being saved. But yet, as believers, as disciples, there are responsibilities. You see that actually throughout Mark's Gospel, and it's one of the things that Mark is trying to show to his readers How has Mark been showing us Jesus uh, talking about salvation? Jesus hasn't been talking about salvation in the way that we often talk about it. Jesus hasn't been talking about dying and going to heaven, for example. Jesus hasn't been talking about um, eternal judgment, at least not very frequently. It's come up occasionally. The clearest way Jesus has been speaking about salvation is by talking about his kingdom. That's the way Jesus introduced his ministry. The kingdom of God is near. That was right back in chapter 1. You might be familiar with that if you've been with our series for the past few weeks. And what Jesus is offering is not just some vague thing that might happen to you after you die. Jesus is offering you entry into his kingdom. And so uh, rather than seeing this as a way of like uh, maybe signing up to an email list where you just get gifts sent to you for free, rather it's more like becoming part of Jesus' family. Becoming part of his people, his nation, if you like. Now, if you think about joining a family, Jesus has used those sorts of illustrations before in Mark. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister. Those family imagery has come up before. If you think about becoming a Christian as joining the family of Jesus Christ, then it's easier to see how these responsibilities are laid on our heads. When you are in a family, you have responsibilities to your family. You don't, you don't define a family by responsibilities, but certainly responsibilities are a big part of it. Responsibility to love, to be, to be part of that family, to be present with them, to care for one another. 
And when people begin to shirk those responsibilities, question marks uh, are raised about whether this person is really part of that family or what contribution they're making to this family. So what is involved in becoming a follower of Jesus? I want to show you that throughout Mark, a key theme is that followers of Jesus tell others about Jesus. That's one of the responsibilities that you have if you are a follower of Jesus. Followers of Jesus tell others about Jesus. That's your role. Now, I'm not here this morning to shame you or to guilt you or to to, to force you out onto the street corners to to speak to uh, every which person which might pass you by. I'm not here to get you to buy a big bundle of tracts to stick in every letter that you send out to the bank or wherever you might else send, send letters. I'm not here to get you to change your Facebook status to a Bible verse just to let absolutely everybody know that you really are a believer. I'm not here to, to guilt trip you into those typical uh, things that we often think of when we talk about evangelism. In fact, I would want to say not every believer is called to be an evangelist if I had more time to clarify what I mean by evangelist in that sense. But I do want to show you this morning that followers of Jesus have a responsibility to tell others about Jesus. But this responsibility is not a a burden, it's not a duty, more it's a a privilege. And it's not something that's difficult that 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 you're going to need to study for and and, and pick up the the big thick books about and and learn about all the arguments against Christianity and and learn about how to defend it and become ever more persuasive and charismatic so you can engage in conversations with people that you don't know. That's not what I'm going to try and get you to do. What I'm going to show you is that Jesus calls you to tell others about the things that he has done for you. Just like we see Jesus do with uh, the man who was healed of the demons. After all, Jesus said, come to me because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. I don't want to load you up with undue responsibility and duty. We're going to see in this passage that we've read today what is involved in making disciples. We're going to learn from Jesus, who is uh, the key disciple maker. How does he go and uh, win people into the kingdom? And then we're going to look at what happens to that demon-possessed man and how he is sent out as a model example for us as one follower of Jesus who tells others about Jesus. I've got three lessons, three things we have to do if we're going to uh, tell others about Jesus. First, we go, then we show, and then we tell. Go, show, tell. First, uh, we go. Now, before we get to Mark chapter 5, let me just uh, give you another brief look at Mark's gospel as a whole. I want to show you how Mark is pulling out this responsibility and saying that actually this is not just something that Jesus did, but also Jesus' followers are called to be tellers of other people. Now, I mentioned already, back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus uh, describes his mission as inviting people into the kingdom. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then the very next verse, or the very next verses, Jesus goes down to the lake and he calls his very first disciples, come and follow me. So Jesus is saying, here's the kingdom. The doors are now opening. Come and follow me. But to his first disciples, he says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me so that you can go and bring others into this kingdom. 
That's what happens with the very first disciples. Now, admittedly, as you read on through chapter 1, there are some who become followers of Jesus, it seems, who are told not to go. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 44, Jesus says, See that you don't tell this to anyone when he heals the leper, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded. Don't tell this to anyone, Jesus tells the leper. But I think, uh, actually, this is a pretty unique commandment to, to, to... to that leper, rather than a general commandment to all of the the disciples that will come. The reason Jesus tells him not to go and tell anyone is because, verse 45, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. That premature expansion of his ministry actually becomes a hindrance. And so Jesus says, "Just, just hold your horses for a moment. But as you continue to read through Mark, you see actually this, this intention of disciples taking the gospel out continues. So you get to chapter 4, and Jesus teaches his disciples about the kingdom, how the kingdom is going to spread. And how is the kingdom going to spread? It's not going to spread by gravitational pull, people are just getting dragged in. It's going to spread by the word being scattered, like a farmer going out into his field and, and spreading the seed. That's how his kingdom is going to spread. He's going to need these workers to spread. And yet, ironically, in Mark's gospel, it's not those very well-taught disciples, those who have received the secret of the kingdom, who are the ones going and telling. Actually, in Mark's gospel, the apostles, the 12 disciples, they're bumbling fools for the most part. And you see that in, for example, the calming of the storm. They, They are the ones who are supposed to know most clearly the power of Jesus. And yet they're terrified. And they're put to shame by what goes on in chapter 5, where, for example, you get the woman who was bleeding. She she wasn't terrified of the crowds. She has ultimate faith in the power and strength of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Or Jairus, the synagogue ruler. He's supposed to be one opposed to Jesus, isn't he? But he has ultimate faith in the power of Jesus. And these people begin to put to shame the disciples, showing them as, as weak and unable. And actually, we're supposed to take our example from these minor characters that Mark introduces us to. And shows, look, these are the ones who've really got the idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And so in chapter 5, Jesus shows the disciples what it really means to spread the word. And first he he goes. Jesus, in verse 1, they went across the lake. They went to the other side. Jesus, for the first time in Mark's gospel, leaves a Jewish region. And now he's approaching Gentiles, non-Jews, Greeks. People who are hostile to God, who, who know nothing of the Jewish scriptures, really of who Jesus the Messiah ought to be and and, and will be. Jesus moves into this area to to tell them, too, that the kingdom has come. That might mean an awful lot less to them if they've not got an understanding of who the great king is that they're supposed to be expecting. But yet Jesus knows that his kingdom is not just a Jewish system, but his kingdom is going to span the whole world. And so he takes this first step into the rest of the world. And he crosses the lake. And what sort of people does he meet as he crosses the lake, as he takes this first step into the world? Are they nice people or not nice people? Well, you be the judge. What happens in Mark chapter 5? Mark pounds on the the description of this first man who comes charging down the cliffs to meet them as they land their boat on the other side of the lake. I can count at least seven things that Mark does to describe this man, and none of them are positive. He's got an evil spirit. He lives in amongst the tombs. No one can bind him, not even with chains. He broke the chains and and the bindings that were on him. No one was strong enough to subdue him. 
Night and day he cries out and he, he cuts himself with stones. He's a lunatic. Jesus takes this first step into the rest of the world and this nutter comes charging towards them. Now, when the disciples had been called to become fishers of men, I wonder if this is the sort of men that they had in mind. Now, we, we just throw them back in the water, if you, if you want to continue the, uh, the imagery, the illustration. You can imagine their fear as they see this crazed guy charging down the beach, screaming at the top of his lungs, trying to, trying to scare and drive away Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't run. He doesn't tell his disciples to, to stand back while, while he uses his power. He doesn't call down the angels to protect them. In fact, Jesus might even have asked his disciples the same question he finished with in chapter 4. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You can imagine it being an appropriate point for him to ask that question. Jesus doesn't see a lunatic to be avoided. Jesus doesn't see a nutter charging down the beach towards him. He sees a man who needs to be loved. He sees a man who is ready to be invited into his kingdom. The gospel must not be withheld from anyone. Jesus is showing in a very real and practical way. He's showing his disciples, look, when I'm going to send you out later, when, when you are going to pick up this task of sowing the word and spreading the kingdom, you are going to need to, to go. You're going to need to cross that lake. You're going to go into those areas with, with which you are unfamiliar. And you are going to meet people who seem unready to be given the gospel. You're going to meet people who seem unworthy to receive the gospel. But I want you to go. I want you to go and share the gospel with them because my kingdom is going to span the whole world, not just a small portion. Two things we ought to learn from this. No one, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. You are not too broken. You are not too sinful. You are not too unworthy. You are not too full of doubts. You have not done something so great, so greatly wrong, that Jesus Christ will not accept you if you come to him. No one is disqualified from hearing and receiving the gospel, the good news of salvation through the Lord Jesus. You are welcome. And secondly, because of that same truth, no one is outside of our target audience as we, the followers, go and tell others about Jesus. And so we're gonna, we're gonna go. We're gonna go into the whole world. We're not gonna restrict the gospel message from a certain group or class of people. There is no one who is too rich. There is no one who is too poor. There is no one who is too good. There is no one who is too bad. There is no one who is already too religious. Or there is no one who is too unreligious. Why is it that we sometimes create these barriers in our mind? Ah, this person's a Muslim. Surely they don't need to hear about Jesus Christ. Surely they've already got their religion. They'd never listen anyway. And so we don't tell them. Ah, this person's, this person's an atheist. They're evolutionists. They have no, they'd have no respect for the scriptures. I'm not going to bother trying to explain to them what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, this person, they're already a, a really good person. They put me to shame in some of the ways they behave. They're such a good person. Do they really need to become Christians as well? Surely, surely they're okay as they are. And we can tend to put up these barriers. 
And yet what Jesus is showing us is, don't put up that barrier. Be willing to take the gospel to, to anyone and everyone. Because the whole world needs to hear this good news. We go. Secondly, we show. We show love, specifically. When Jesus reaches this uh, demon-possessed man, he interacts with him in order to show him love. Jesus first begins to talk with the demons. When, when he saw Jesus from a distance, verse 6, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Jesus is both talking to the man and really he's talking to the spirits who have uh, invaded the man. Now, as you begin to look at this conversation, a real tricky question comes up. What's the deal with the pigs, right? What's the deal with the pigs? Why is it that the, the demons are scared of being tortured of Jesus and yet it looks like their escape from that torture is to enter into the pigs? And yet the pigs, they don't end up living in the pigs because the pigs charge down the hill and die. What on earth is going on with the pigs? And there have been all sorts of suggestions made of, about how the pigs are symbolic and, uh, and you can pick up different pictures and, and allegorize it and make interesting, funny little pictures of, uh, of other parts of scripture. But I don't think you need to be complicated about interpreting what's going on. The demons first ask to go into the pigs. That's important to note. Now, let's think, why might the demons ask to go into the pigs? And I think the answer is evident in the story. Because you see that when the demons go into the pigs, it produces a result of which the demons would be pleased. When the demons go into the pigs, they charge the pigs down the hill into the water, and the people of the surrounding countryside say of Jesus, whoa, we don't like this man, send him away. Isn't that exactly what the demons would have wanted to happen? They want to shut down Jesus' ministry, stop it from progressing. And so they asked to go into the pigs in order that the people watching would be so fearful of Jesus and perhaps so angry at Jesus that rather than listening to the gospel message, they drive him away. That's why the demons want to go into the pigs. And it seems to work. Because of all those people watching what happened, there was only one man who submitted to Jesus as Lord. Well done, demons. But now you've created another problem, okay? So if the demons asked to go into the pigs and that was the genuine reason why, then... Why does Jesus allow it to happen? Why didn't Jesus stop that? And again, seeing the reading the story, you can see why Jesus might allow these things to happen. The the demon-possessed man says he's got a, a legion of demons within him. Jesus has already been accused of being able to drive out demons because he himself is demon-possessed. He's the prince of demons. Now, what Jesus does is, is, if he can show that, look, I'm not just suppressing the demons, I'm not just controlling them within this man to, to cause him to act more sensibly for a few moments. I'm not the prince of demons in charge of my demons. I'm, I'm driving out these demons. I'm rescuing this man. I'm freeing this man. And the most visual way he can show that to the people watching is for this legion of demons to go out into the legion, the 2,000 pigs out on the hill. And it's a very visual thing. Those thousands of demons that were in that man have now gone elsewhere. They've been driven out and he is free. And so Jesus is seen by all to be powerful. More powerful than even that legion of demons that were within this man. Jesus shows his great power over the demons. But in doing so, he shows his care and provision for the demon-possessed man. 
The man doesn't ask to be freed, like others do, who are sometimes brought to Jesus with a demon. Jesus doesn't first demand that the man repents of whatever sin it has been that, that has allowed or caused these demons to, to enter into him. Jesus rightly describes in verse 19, God has had, uh, the Lord has had mercy on you. That's what Jesus is doing when, when he drives out these demons. He's having mercy on this man. There's nothing that this man has done to deserve Jesus to act in the way that he does. And yet Jesus rescues him. Jesus first shows his power in order to care for the man. And that care is what eventually will lead that man to put his trust in Jesus. This, this same pattern is often the pattern you see throughout the New Testament. You, you read the book of Acts and you see uh, the, the, the cripple who was at the gate to the city. And Peter heals him. And the cripple eventually becomes a follower of Christ. You, you think of uh, those sailors who were with Paul in the shipwreck. And as Paul, uh, guided by God, guides the sailors to safety, uh, the sailors have a great respect and reverence for God. You think of uh, later on in, in the New Testament, the uh, Anesimus, the slave of Philemon, who is shown care and generosity by Paul and eventually led back into, well, first led into faith and then sent back to his master. Often, the first thing that people know about the love of God is when they experience love through God's people. This is what is happening at New Life Church. That's what we're hearing about this morning. Those people in that community are first hearing about the love of Jesus when they experience that love directly through Christian people who say, it is wrong that you live without enough food to put on the plate for you and your family. It is, it is, it, it is saddening to us that you are crippled by debt. It hurts us. And we're going to show our compassion towards you and help you out of this difficult situation. Now, there will be some who receive that act of mercy. It is an act of mercy. They've done nothing to deserve it from the church. There will be some who receive that act of mercy and then run with it. Thank you very much. I'm off. Perhaps to fall into the same situation again. Perhaps to be to be freed from, from that shackle that once had them. But they, they might not want anything to do with Christ. But yet there are others for whom that first show of mercy, generosity, love opens the door for them to eventually listen to the greater work of love that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. And we heard this morning about the man who's first been helped through the cap debt service and then been shown who Jesus really is and put his trust in him. Now look, the thing thing that churches are doing in that way, they're they're not just winning the conversation, winning the right to a conversation. They're not just saying, right, I'll do a good thing for you If you then listen to me so that I can tell you something else good that I want you to do. That's not what's going on. For the the man in the passage, there was no other conversation. There was no other conversation needed. The act of generosity of Jesus driving out the demons was itself the display of Christ's lordship. And that's all that the man needed to see in order to then to, to, to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, the the act of generosity is not winning the right to a further conversation. It it is the conversation itself. It's saying God has love for the world. God desires to be reconciled to you. He loves you. Let me show you how much he loves you. I'm going to give you a glimpse of his love. And now I'm going to tell you more 
about his greatest act of love. The act of generosity is the conversation. There's often more uh, besides that need to be added. But Jesus is showing us that when we go and tell others about him, first we, we go to all and then we show them his love for them. Thirdly, tell. Go, show, tell. That care that is received from Jesus is vital to this uh, demon-possessed man because it becomes the message that he then tells to other people. The key verse in this passage that we've read is verse 19. Jesus said to him, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. My aim, my prayer is that we would take that verse as a direct instruction to ourselves. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is instructing you, go, go home to your family, to your neighbours, to your friends, to the people around you, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's the responsibility that is that is on your head. That is a different instruction to what the disciples will get in chapter 6. The disciples are instructed to go and preach repentance. There's a difference there. This man is instructed to go and tell about what the Lord has done for you. Go and tell them the care you've received. Go and tell them how Jesus approached you with mercy and love and compassion. Go and tell them how Jesus has rescued you. There's a huge mistake that we are prone to falling into when we think about going and telling others about the gospel. Tell them, tell them what? Often we fall into the mistake of the first thing we want to tell them is to tell them that they are wrong, tell them that we are right and that we've got the right way of salvation and they must change and follow us. Now who in their right mind, if that was the first interaction they have with the Christian church, would listen? The first thing you hear from someone is, you're wrong and I'm right. You've got to change and follow us. It's not going to cause anyone to to listen, not sincerely. The first thing we do is show the love. And then through that love, we show, look, yes, there is a need for repentance. There is a need for you to submit to Christ as Lord. But you're not doing it by, by saying, you're wrong and we're right. Change your ways and become like us. You're doing it by saying... Isn't Jesus great? Isn't he good? Can't you see the work that he has done in my life? And wouldn't you like to receive some of the same things? And so Jesus, he's taken this first step into the rest of the world. This is his first step of the kingdom spreading. Like that great mustard seed shooting out and and becoming the largest of of all the trees. This is the first step into the rest of the world. And he's now got an opportunity to send someone into this Gentile region, this Greek region, people who who don't know anything of him, who've got nothing in the scriptures, who are not waiting at all for the Messiah. And who does he send? Does he send the disciples who've had all the training, who've received the, the secret of the kingdom? No, he sends the one who's received compassion. And, it, and he doesn't send him with a message of, tell them what the kingdom is, tell them the scriptures, argue for the, for the reliability of God's word. Argue against the, the pagan and, and atheistic uh, arguments that, and worldview that these people might have. He doesn't send him to do that. He says, go and tell them what God has done for you. That is how you are going to be my ambassador. Be a, a representative of God's love to the world. You know, if you're a believer, 
how God has had mercy on you. You know what it is to enjoy purpose in your life, to have hope for the future, to not fear death like an unbeliever might fear death. You know God's generosity in providing for your every need. You know the way God has answered your prayers in the past. You know the way that God has healed you and your family in times past. You know the way that you have comfort and joy through knowing Christ in the gospel. You know the mercy that God has had upon you. And your responsibility is to go out, not necessarily be an evangelist and learn all the arguments that that are against Christianity, know how to defend them, not necessarily speaking to, to every new person you sit next to on the bus, but go and tell them what God has done for you. Tell them the story that you know. Tell them the way you have seen God's generosity towards you. Tell them. Be an ambassador for Jesus Christ in this way. Don't hold back on the people who you tell. Tell your family. Tell the people you live with. The man goes into the cities, into the Decapolis, and he tells all that Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. And who is the hero of that story that you tell? When you're explaining the way God has had mercy on you? Well, look, you're not the hero. You're the weakling. You're the one who's been saved. You're only telling, Jesus has had this mercy on me. Wouldn't you like to receive similar? And you share the goodness of God with others. And it's the first step, the first opportunity for them to hear of the fullness of the gospel message. Later on, other conversations might come. Later on, they will need to be told about repentance and faith and what it is to turn from sin. And God has given the church evangelists and pastors and preachers and teachers in order to do that work or help with that work of explaining repentance and true faith. But for each and every believer, we have a responsibility. We have an opportunity. We have the privilege of being ambassadors for Christ and going and telling how the Lord has had mercy on you.